Romans chapter 12 this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to uh, um, just remind us as Christians that we're called to pray um, for those who lead us, um, not just in our church, but in our nation. And um, over the past couple weeks, with all the stuff going on, I just want to remind us that that's what we're called to do. Pray for those in Congress and the Senate, our president and vice president, even those who lead our local community. Um, With all the uprising going on, um, some people are taken aback by this. However, I think biblically when we look at what the Bible says about things like this, um, it shouldn't come necessarily as a surprise. Um, Society is not going to get better. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us um, that it's going to get worse. Even Jesus himself in Matthew 24 said that for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And it's interesting when you do a study on those words, that Greek word from the original text translated nation is ethnos, which means people or race. And um, there's no place for any kind of racial hatred within the body of Christ. The Bible is very clear on that. Um, The Bible says over and over again that there's neither Jew nor Greek. That was their racism of their day. They dealt with that kind of racism between the Jews and the Greeks. But the Bible says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female. We're all one in Christ. And we just need to be reminded of that. Sometimes, you know, you can watch the news and get very um, disheartened. Even in the Gospel of Acts, chapter 15, uh, verse 9, it says that they made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Um, Also in Acts, Peter said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. And so we need to understand that um, the Gospel that saved us is the same gospel that will save those souls filled with hate. And uh, we pray to that end. And we also pray for those over us in authority over us that God would grant them wisdom during these times. But as we turn to Romans chapter 12, uh, I just want us to be reminded we're here in Romans chapter 12. We've been in here for a couple of weeks. And um, last week, just a way of, of a reminder, we looked at the message, what's love got to do with it? And we said everything. And I want to read for our, us this morning our text. And I'm going to begin in verse 9, and this is what we covered last week. But uh, just for review, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, he says, uh, we'll start in verse 8, for to one... I'm in First Corinthians. Hold on a second. <laughs> I'm looking at these words, and I'm like, that's not what I want to read. What's going on? All right, here we are. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. 
be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Now, last week, just way of review, we looked at what's love got to do with it, everything, and we kind of defined that idea of love as it's a, a love that can only come from God. It's an unselfish, um, self-giving love. It's a willful devotion. It centers on the needs and the welfare of others, not yourself. It clearly calls us to sacrifice. And we looked at the nature of this love, and we said that it was, first of all, it shows that it was genuine. He says, let love be genuine. And that, words, that word means without a mask. It means without hypocrisy. But it also says that love is to be discriminating. And we thought that that was kind of interesting. In other words, there's some things that, you know, we can't just hold hands and sing kumbaya and say, oh, love conquers all. Um, Because love is to be discriminating. And so he tells us there, first of all, this kind of love is a love that is hating what is evil or abhorring what is evil. First, he tells us to love. Then he says, but you have to hate this. And then he says, hold fast to what is good. And so there's a twofold kind of outworking of love. One is that it's holding fast to what is good, but it's also hating what is evil. And we looked in detail what that means. And a lot of people misunderstand that God is just a God of love. And that's all there is. Well, no. And we looked at some scriptures that said, no, God does hate some things. And we should hate those same things with the same amount of passion. Um, and then we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, and we talked about the preeminence of love. And you can get that message on the, the, app, the uh, app or the website. But we also closed off, and we said, you know what? The only reason we can have this kind of love in our hearts is because Christ, God, first loved us. This isn't something you can just generate in and of yourself. It takes the Spirit of God. <clears throat> and so this morning... As we look at the, these verses 10 to 13, in verse 9, he described and he told us what love is. And now he says, here's how you use it. So we're going to title this, Love in Action in the Church. Love in Action in the Church. And notice that was last week, those weren't three things, love and then hate and then cling to something. It was saying this is a love that hates and clings to something. They're participles. And so we, we looked at all that last week. And so today we want to begin in verse 10 here. And he says, love one another with brotherly affection. And we see here, this is the call to love. He calls us to love one another in the body of Christ. Uh, the Holman Bible translates that this way. He's, it says, show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Um, the New American Standard says, be devoted to one another in love. And all those are wonderful translations of that uh, verse. So we have to look at these words and say, well, what? What do these words mean? And so here in, in uh, the first word here, when he says, let love be genuine. Okay, and then he goes on in verse 10. He says, love one another. Love one another. Um, 
that word is being devoted to love in, 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 with one another. And it's actually a combination of two words for love. Last week, we looked at the four different uh, Greek words that were there for us. Eros being the, the sexual kind of love, which isn't even mentioned in the New Testament, which is kind of amazing when you stop and think about it. Um, and then you have phileo, which is a brotherly kind of love. Uh, and then you have... Uh, the other two that we, we had talked about. But here, this is a combination between phileo and, and sorge, the other Greek word for love. And it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, idea here when it says be devoted. It has the idea of a friend plus a family member. It's somebody that is kind of the combination of those two. And the word brotherly love is another compound word between phileo and brother. We get the, the, the town on the east coast in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. That's kind of exactly what the, the Greek word means for brotherly love. And so when you see that, this is a call that we need to have this. And what he's saying is this is a, a love that we should have without hypocrisy. And so what he does is he gives us this call to love. And then he says, well, here's how this kind of works out. You know, you have agape love, you have phileo love, sorge love, eros love. And this is kind of a combination of, of some of those words. And when you stop and you think about, even the King James says, be kindly affectionate to one another. If you have a King James Bible. And that word kindly is based kind of on the semantical word kin, which means family. So they all kind of have the same idea here. And um, when you stop and you, you think of what we're called to do as Christians within the body of Christ, we're being told that we are to love and to treat Christians just like we would those members of our own family. That's a stretch <laughs> for a lot of people. You know, Christians are a family, of course, within the body of Christ. But when you stop and you think about, regardless of their, their background, their race, their nationality, the occupation they may have, wealth, whatever, education. It doesn't matter. All that is irrelevant. And so it tells us that we're to have that kind of a relationship, one with, one with another, in, within the body of Christ. We haven't sung it in a while, but there's a hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And it goes like this. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. See, that's really what we're talking about here. We're talking this, this kindred mind and, and the idea that we are of the spiritual kin. We're of the same members of God's family here on earth. And so our devotion to one another is not to be a matter of liking or not liking. You know, sometimes, well, I don't want to hang around with them. I don't like them. Or I don't want to, you know, be nice to that person. I don't like them. That's not the standard. Christians love one another as a close-knit family we're supposed to. Because that's what God calls us to do. Now, you're going to probably cozy up to some people. You won't cozy up to others. That's okay. That's just personality differences. But a lot of times we hear people say things like, ah, I love him, love him in the Lord, you know, and that means you don't really like the guy, you know, that's, that's, that's what that means. Uh, and that's not, it shouldn't be that way. 
But that's really what we're talking about. And so he gives us this, this call to love. And then he breaks it down and he gives us these characteristics of love. He says, love one another, verse 10, with brotherly affection. And then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. I mean, this is, this is amazing what he's telling us to do here within the body of Christ. Um, and these are all uh, what you call... Uh, datives, they're, 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 they're telling us to do uh, something here, devoted to one another in brotherly love. And you go down through the list here and you see the same thing. You know, we're to prefer one another more than ourselves. And we're to do it in an honorable way, showing honor. Now, you know, most of us are devoted to our natural families, I would say. Most of us at Christmas times probably do some kind of a gift exchange. We buy our family members something. Um, you know, if you have children, you buy your children gifts. But, you know, you don't buy everybody a gift. Why? Because they're not your family. Right? I mean, they're just not. And, and so we kind of fall into that same mindset when it comes to the body of Christ. We think, wow. You know what? I'll take care of, of my physical needs and my family. I'll be responsible here, but you know everybody else is on their own. And that's not really what the Bible teaches. That's not what the New Testament upholds. And so when you stop and you think about it, a lot of churches are way off the mark when it comes to these things. You know, how devoted are we to love our Christian brothers and sisters? Do we treat them the same way we would our own family? I would guess probably most of us would say no. <laughs> Not even by a long shot. And that takes humility to have that kind of care, that kind of concern. And see, Paul must have seen this developing because when he wrote the book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of Philippians, he wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, look at what he says, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not should look not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. So Paul wasn't saying, okay, sell everything and give it to the poor. No, he's saying you got to take care of yourself too, or you're not going to be able to take care of anybody else. But those needs should be uh, not in, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but it says in humility, consider yourself better than uh, consider others better than yourself. And so to give preference here, this word to give preference, that really just goes against our nature. That's not something we naturally will do. It's like the two little children who are playing, want to play with the same toy. And the one says, mommy said we have to share. Now give me it. <laughs> you know, that's their mentality of sharing. Uh, you know, that's how we are sometimes. And we have to remind ourselves, no, that's not what Christ calls us to do. Um, the literal translation of this says, and, and in respect to honor, lead the way for each another. In other words, don't wait around for people to recognize your contributions or to praise you before you praise them or recognize their needs. Instead, it says, be alert to what they are contributing and honor them for it. 
I would say in most churches today, just the opposite is, in the, is the case. Especially when it comes to thinking about or appreciating other Christians and what they are doing. Our minds are usually on ourselves. Well, look at what I'm doing. Why isn't anybody thanking me? And then we grow resentful because we're not sufficiently recognized or appreciated. And then we grow jealous of other Christians who maybe are being recognized and appreciated. And there can be a lot of harm done in the body of Christ by that kind of jealousy. Ministries can be weakened. Churches can be split. And you need to be on guard against that. And this is what Paul is trying to tell us here with this first thing. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. This is how love functions. This is how this kind of God kind of love functions within the body of Christ. It gets to the front of the line not to receive honor for yourself, but to show honor and respect for other people. Well, the second thing he says here is do not be slothful in zeal. Do not be slothful in zeal. Verse 11, actually, he contains three statements here about true love, beginning with a negative. Never be lacking in zeal. Don't be slothful in zeal. A literal translation of that would say, in regard to what you ought to be doing, don't be lazy. That's what he's saying. Don't be lazy. It's a direct command against laziness, against slothfulness. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9 tells us not to be weary in well-doing. See, and that can be, just to be frank, that can be very easy to grow weary in doing well. (laughs) For a lot of Christians. Especially when you've been at it a long time. And especially when you're not seeing the results you want to see. Or the results you think you should be seeing. You want to just throw up your hands and say, what's the use? What's this? What's this? What is this? Why are we doing this? And the Bible says, do not grow weary in well-doing. See, you don't do these things that God has commanded us to do so that, you know, we can have our little felt needs met. You know, we're not faithful to teaching the word here and ministry and and all those things here in this church so that, you know, the, the church fills up. That would be the wrong motivation. There's a lot of ways to fill up a church, beloved. And sometimes it can grow discouraging. And sometimes it's hard to keep going on steadily. But that's exactly what this command is telling us to do. The King James says... Do not be slothful in business. You say, wow, what's he talking about there? Um, Boyce points out there's a couple areas here, four areas, the business of being a Christian. He talks about this. He says, it's a puzzle to me how anyone can take on the most important business of all, the business of being a follower of Jesus Christ, and do it in a passive apathetic, part-time, slothful manner. Yet many do. That's true. That's a true statement. What we should do is follow after Jesus Christ with what? All of our hearts, with all of our minds, and with all the energy at our disposal. We should work 
be in the business of being Christians, being Bible-believing Christians out in this lost and sin-stained world. Because that's what Christ called us to do. He called us to be what? The salt, the light. Robert Candlish wrote this. He said, your sanctification should be up there on the screen. Your sanctification must be made a matter of business. It must be cared for and prosecuted in a business-like way. Not indolently or slothfully as it were a process that might be left to itself. But industriously, seduciously, diligently, with regularity and punctuality. As you would manage a worldly concern on the common principles of the worldly energy and worldly care and worldly zeal. I would add to that and say if, if most Christians ran their Christian life the way they ran their business, they'd be out of business <laughs> in no time. Well, secondly, he points out that the business of being a Christian father or mother, that's also, you can look at it that way. You know, you... forget sometimes when you've raised your kids and they've been out of the home for several years (laughs) what it takes to raise a family takes a lot of work raising kids is not a walk in the park and that kind of Raising of of Christian children by a, a father and mother demands that steady love, that steady hand on the plow. You can't be lazy as Christian parents and expect anything out of those children. It's not going to work. Children will not raise themselves in godliness. As a youth pastor, I used to tell parents, you know what? You're going about the raising of your children all wrong. It's like you, you're looking at this empty field and you're saying, you know what? Um, I just don't want to go through the work of planting seed and, and pulling out the weeds and doing all that. So I'm just going to let it go and see what happens. And come back in a year and guess what? The field is filled with what? It's not luscious crops, let me tell you that. It's filled with weeds. And it takes even more work to deal with it then. And so being a Christian parent is something that takes a lot of work. Thirdly, he talks about Christian business. He says, I'm always surprised how Christian leaders are so often conduct the work of the church in a slipshod manner. (laughs) Doing whatever needs to be done just to get by. When they would never think of conducting their own business in that way or running their own homes on such principles. See, you know, it's our goal here to do the best we can with what we have. We're not trying to impress anybody, but we want to be a good steward of what God has entrusted to us with this property, with these buildings. And that's why at times we upgrade things. We, you know, some people say, why do you have to do that? Because it's falling apart. If we don't, it's going to fall apart. We've got to upgrade things. We've got to continually be fixing things. I mean, if you, know a ho- if you own a home, you know what that's like. You're constantly fixing stuff. Well, think of, you know, a home this big with all kinds of stuff. 
Chandlish also said this. He said, if, if you would fight for Christ, you must fight deliberately with a cool head as well as a warm heart, with fixed and resolute determination upon principle rather than upon impulse. If you would work for Christ, you must work systematically. And you must work on with patience and persevering energy, with firm purpose, not to give up or to give in. See, that's what it takes in any ministry. The fourth thing here, the business of earning a living. Now, this doesn't refer here to commercial enterprise, but it has everything with what we should be doing in our daily lives. So it doesn't exclude the ways that we work with our hands or or employment, whatever it might be. As a matter of fact, Paul told the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord you, Lord Christ, you are serving. I mean, remember that verse the next time you're complaining about your boss or your job or whatever. Are you doing it as unto the Lord? See, that last sentence there means that the love for Christ should prod us to work both well and hard in everything. Everything we do should be the absolute best that we can possibly do. Now, I know we don't all do that all the time, but that should be the desire. And then he moves on here and he says that we should be fervent in spirit. That word fervor or fervent means to boil. Now, there's a problem with that because we relate the word boil to the word what? Anger, right? Boiling anger. It's not talking about that. A literal translation of this phrase would be in respect to the spirit, boiling. And so when we we stop and you think about it, a better word would probably be bubbling over. Uh, the Revised Standard Version says, being aglow with the Spirit. Now, some commentators say, well, this probably doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit. Others say, well, yes, it does. Um, it may more likely re- resemble or refer to the, that, that personality that radiates out of the presence of Christ in your life. It has to do with an attitude. An attitude that's willing to do what needs to be done. Henry Martin was a tireless missionary to India. And people used to warn him, you're doing too much, you're doing too much. And he says, my heart's desire is to burn out for God. (laughs) I mean, would that be our our desire? That you know what, if I'm going to burn out, I'm going to burn out for something that counts. Okay, (laughs) I mean, that just makes sense. Now, we got to take care of ourselves and, you know, God did rest on the seventh day and all those things. I'm not saying that's a prescription to go do. But at the same time, we need to be aware of our attitude when it comes to this certain thing here. Um, I think one of, the, one of the, the things that we lack the most within the body of Christ is enthusiasm for what God has called us to do. I mean, we could sit around and talk about all these commands that God has called us to do and, you know, the impact and all this stuff on the world. 
But this kind of fervency, it requires more than that. It requires resolve. It requires persistence. It doesn't just require having a good intention. Um, Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, as I referred to earlier, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. In Acts fifteen or Acts seven or Acts eighteen twenty five, um, it's written there: fervent in spirit. Speaking of Apollos, Apollos was Apollos was fervent in spirit, speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Paul himself said in Colossians um, one twenty nine, and for this purpose also I labor. Or in 1 Corinthians 9, 26, 26, he says, Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. He's not just going out there and running just aimlessly. He says, I box in such a way as not beating the air. He had a purpose. He had a a reason why he was doing the things that he was doing. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote this, The glow of the Spirit is the warmth of the soul touched by the love of Christ. It cannot exist apart from the knowledge that we have been loved, that Christ gave himself for our sins, that we have been redeemed, and that the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in our hearts. Such knowledge causes us to yield in full surrender to him as Lord of all. The Holy Spirit who dwells in all believers will glow through those who allow him to fill and direct their lives. That's what we're called to do and be as believers. So be fervent in spirit. Fourth thing here, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. It's probably been added to this idea of spiritual fervor here. So this this glow of the spirit is not just, you know, this glow, but it actually accomplishes something. It's focused on the work and the cause of Christ. Um, When he says here, serve the Lord or serving the Lord, it has to do with perspective. It has to do with priority. One commentator wrote this, everything we should do, everything we do should first of all be consistent with God's word. Everything we do should be consistent with this book. Secondly, he says, everything we do should be truly in his service and for his glory. I mean, if we can get that right, are we doing things that are in this book and are we doing it for his glory, not our own? That will make an impact. That text literally reads, as regards the Lord serving You remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. How Jesus once asked his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? (laughs) In other words, your words mean nothing to me because you're not really fulfilling your words. If Jesus is truly your Lord, your Savior, the Bible says that you'll obey him, you'll serve him. You won't have to be asked to. You won't have to be made to be felt guilty over not serving him. You could do no less. Romans chapter 1, verse 9, remember what Paul said when he started this whole letter. 
He said he served God in his spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. And here he kind of doubles down on that. He uses a word here in verse 11 of chapter 12 that refers to a bond slave. And the very reason for a bond slave's existence was to do the master's will. Out of love. And that's what Paul identifies himself with. But we don't serve the Lord with our own power, right? We don't go off just half-cocked and do whatever we want to do and, and, and expect that to be called service for the Lord. Our, our supreme purpose is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and our power comes from him. And that service comes from him. We looked at a couple weeks ago at the beginning here of chapter 12. These gifts that he gives us come from him. We don't generate any of this stuff ourselves. And that's why Paul says that he can strive according to his power, which works within him in Colossians 1, 20, 29. And remember, it was Jesus himself. It says that he did not come to be served, right? But to what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the idea that serving the Lord is some abstract thing, and no, this is something that every Christian is called to do. Fifthly here, quickly, rejoice in hope. Rejoice, rejoicing in hope, Paul writes. Verse 12 kind of begins this next little section of this list, and they kind of go together. You could paraphrase it. And so, so far as we have cause to hope, let us be joyful. And so as far as we have cause to pain, let us hold out. And as far as the door of prayer is open to us, let us continue to use it. That's kind of a good paraphrase of verse 12. I mean, hope always has to do, beloved, with what God has promised us in his word, right? But we haven't seen it yet. That's the idea of hope. In particular, it refers to that blessed hope that we all pray for and long for, that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13 calls it. Or in 1 John, we just finished 1 John, and in chapter 3, verse 2, when we were studying through that, we, we studied the verse that says, you know what, we have a hope, and that hope will be one day we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. I don't know about you, but I'm longing for that day. I mean, I'm just growing tired of this world each and every week as it goes on. It's like, wow, how much more? But there's a lot of work that needs to be done yet. And so the fact that we do not see this hope is important. Because that's where faith comes in. It means that as Christians, we have fixed our eyes on something that is invisible, something spiritual. Like Abraham in the Old Testament, who do not set his affection on the things of this life, Hebrews 11.10 tells us, but was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. See, more than anything else as Christians, we should be set apart from those who are just merely secular by our worldview, 
what do we think of this world? Are we buying into all the global warming stuff and all the, you know, save the trees, all this stuff? I mean, hey, we should be a good steward of what God has entrusted to us. But you know what? One day it's all going to burn up. I'm not going to be here, so I don't really care. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, I'll be driving down the freeway throwing Pepsi cans out the window. You know, I'm not going to litter. I'm not going to do those kind of things. But I'm also not going to get to the point where I'm worshiping creation. Because that's just plain wrong. Romans 1 tells us it's wrong. So here, living this supernatural life brings opposition from the world. When you go out and you try to live as a Christian in this world, you're going you're gonna to get some kickback. You're going to feel some resentment. Sometimes I hear Christians say, well, no, I, I live as a Christian and I don't feel any resentment by this world. And I just want to say, I don't know what kind of Christian life you're living, but you're not living a New Testament Christian life where we speak up and we speak out in love, but we do so because we know that the truth is on our side. Without hope, beloved, we could not survive. Did you ever think about that? In Romans 8, verses 24 and 25, Paul wrote, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. See, rejoicing in that hope, we know that there's this steadfast, immovable, always abounding idea of working for the Lord. That our toil is not in vain, as Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 15. I don't know about you, but I'm longing for the day to stand before God, stand before Christ, and hear the words of Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. Longing for that day. And I want to do everything now within my means and within my power through the power of the Spirit to make that happen. Second Timothy, Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, In the future there is laid up for us a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to us on that day and to all who have loved his appearing. So we need to be joyful in hope. But we also have to understand that we have to be patient in tribulation. Patient in tribulation. Romans chapter 5, verses 2 and 5 says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, he says in verse 3, verse three but we rejoice in our sufferings. I don't hear a lot of Christians rejoicing in their sufferings today. I hear a lot of Christians, whoa, man, I a bad week. Oh, oh man, oh, it's like there's black clouds over them. And they're just going on and on about how. I even hear that from pastors. Go to a pastor's conference and all they do is whine about their churches, whine about their boards, whine about, you know, how hard ministry is and what a struggle. And it's like, you know, I just want to say, look, go, go work somewhere else. Go do something else. Because it doesn't sound you really enjoy this. <laughs> But he says here, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering, what? Produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces, look at that, hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out on our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, while we're waiting for this glory that's to be yet revealed in us, sometimes we have to suffer some persecution. Sometimes we have to suffer some affliction, some suffering. And Paul says, you know what? Be patient. You know, don't go to God and demand your best life now. I mean, if this is all God's got to offer is is the life I'm living now, I forget it. (laughs) You know, I'm not looking for this life. I'm looking for the life to come. This isn't the best. We should not be overly confident that we are among the good or somehow that our actions, especially those that are criticized without any evil motives or beyond reproach, you know, we, we need to be careful with that. We need to be patient. We need to ask God to, to continue to allow us to see his purpose and his will for our lives as we go through these tribulations. Second Peter 1.10, he writes that we should be making sure our calling, making our election sure. We examine ourselves to see whether Do we truly love Christ? Are we truly his follower? Are we truly serving him? Or are we simply pursuing our own earthly interests here on earth? So be patient in tribulation. The seventh thing he says, be constant in prayer. These are getting more and more direct to our hearts. They're being more and more convicted. At least that's how I felt as I went through this list. I mean, do you ever think about this? They kind of play on each other because one of the reasons that the Lord allows us to go through tribulation, I firmly believe this, is so that it will drive us back to him or drive us to him. Because I don't know about you, but I'm just the kind of person that if everything's going well, you know, my prayer life kind of just kind of tempers down. It's not non-existent, but it's, you know, it's not as intense as if, Someone in the family has been diagnosed with something. Somebody's going into an operation. Oh, then we're all, all about prayer. You know, we got the knee pads on and everything. We're ready to go. See, I mean, that just shows us. We have, we have kind of a, a, a skewed motivation here. And what he's saying is, in prayer, continue to be faithful. You know, continue to be devoted to prayer. I mean, prayer is communion with the Lord. That word devoted there literally means to be strong towards something. It has the idea of, you might say, steadfastness or somebody who's just unwavering. They're just focused. That was how the early Christians worshipped. You can see constantly they were in prayer. It was to enable the apostles to devote themselves in, in Acts chapter 6 verse 4. To prayer and to the ministry of the world, the word. That's why they raised up deacons. That's why they raised up servants within the church because they didn't have time to do those things. You might read it this way: in regard to prayer, continue, continue. It's not that we never pray as Christians, right? I mean, we pray probably all the time. We pray before we eat a meal. 
We pray maybe before we begin our day. We pray when we're having our devotions. But sometimes we get tired of praying. Sometimes you can be in prayer and your mind wanders. Before you know it, you're thinking, I wonder what the score of the game is. Or I wonder who won this or I wonder who did this. And a lot of times we neglect prayer during the times we need it most. I mean, our Lord was aware of this, right? He had a lot to say about prayer. If you go through the Gospels, you can find prayer all over the place that he's speaking of prayer. And we don't need to turn it into something it's not. You know, prayer, I'd like to define prayer this way. Prayer is an attitude of dependence upon God. But see, we've dumbed it down to just something that we do. So if we have our time a little prayer in the morning, well, then we check that off and it's done. No, it's, it's an attitude that carries you throughout the day. That you know what? I'm dependent upon God for everything. And I want to make sure that, you know, before I make this business decision or before I talk to this employee or before I go do this or whatever, that, you know what, God, hey, just give me some wisdom here. Simple prayer. It's a prayer of honor. I mean, in Luke 11, Jesus had teaching on prayer. After he'd given the Lord's Prayer, Jesus told about a man who knocked on a neighbor's door late at night. You remember that? Because a friend had come and he had nothing to give him. And although the neighbor did not want to get out of bed, eventually, because he was so persistent, he answered, provided what was needed. Jesus also talked about prayer. And he said, he used the illustration of human fathers who willingly give their children food when they ask for it. They don't substitute a snake for a fish. (laughs) Or a a, a scorpion for an egg. They're not going to do that to their children. See, those, those stories are there by Jesus to illustrate that on one hand, God is willing to meet the needs. He's willing to meet the needs. And so we need to see that. So in Luke eleven nine, Jesus said, So ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. What's he saying? He's saying pray. Just pray. It doesn't have to be something eloquent. It doesn't have to be some big theological King James sounding words. Just pray. Just have that communication with God. The only reasons we might fail to pray are, first of all, think about this the next time you don't want to pray, is you don't think We don't think that we need God's help. That's one reason why we don't pray. We don't think we need God's help. We think that somehow we're adequate within ourselves to deal with what we have. And we've all been there. Putting that toy together on Christmas morning for the young child. And, you know, oh, instructions? Who needs instructions? I'm a man. Give me a screwdriver and a wrench. I can put anything together. And then we get the thing together. It doesn't work. And there's five nuts and bolts left over. And we're brought to our knees. In frustration, the kid's crying, and it's just not a good situation. Why? Because we thought we were adequate to do it. We didn't pause and pray. We didn't, we didn't ask the Lord for help. Or secondly, we simply don't believe that God really is the loving Father he claims to be. So why would we pray to him? So the next time you don't feel like praying, ask yourself, do I think that I don't need God? 
Or maybe it's the other. Maybe I don't really believe that God is the loving father he claims to be. That will motivate you to pray every time. Well, he also says here, contributing to the needs of the saints. Contributing to the needs of the saints. You get the Greek word here, koinia, from this fellowship or communion. It's often translated. And this, this really has two distinct ideas here. First of all, to share with God's people who are in need and also to practice hospitality. And we've kind of broke them down into two things, but they're really one and the same. They kind of grow out of each other. The original language says, in regard to the need of the saints, participating, practicing hospitality. That's kind of what that, that speaks of. And he's not just talking here about giving away your money. This is not what he's talking about, more than likely, to some poor Christian. He probably doesn't even have that in mind. He's thinking more about the needs of Christians and about identifying with those needs. And there's a lot more needs than just financial needs. Sometimes people are mourning. They lose a loved one. We should go and identify with that person. We should come alongside of that person. Maybe somebody else is feeling um, abandoned or lonely. We should maybe provide the company that they need during that time, to the degree that we're able to, at least. And we should also, at times, give to the financial needs of impoverished people. That's clearly part of it, but it's not solely what he's talking about. Jesus made a a test of whether a person is truly a Christian. He said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34 and 36, he says, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came and visited me. And those who, by the way, didn't do these things, it says later on in verse 46, 46, they were thrown into eternal punishment. So this idea of contributing or koinonia means to share with someone else. It's kind of a commonality. It's a partnership. It involves a mutual sharing. That's why Acts says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, that same word, koinonia, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. This isn't teaching communism by any means. It's not saying that. He's saying here that, you know what? Because we all share in the benefits of Christ, because we're all in the same family of Christ together, that we should be willing to contribute to the needs of the saints. And then the last thing here, show hospitality. This is kind of an outgrowth of that. This literally means to pursue. Relax, ladies. This is kind of unnerving. Pursue the love of strangers. (laughs) When we first got married... I think it was the first Thanksgiving we had together. I was telling my wife, well, today we 
all get in the car and we drive out. I was living in Fremont at the time. We drive out somewhere, 680, whatever, and look for a, a family. And then we pick them up and we provide a meal and put them in a hotel. We're not doing that. <laughs> Are you nuts? I mean, you're not taking me and my daughter out with some stranger and, you know, they could kill us. So I kind of had to change, change it up a little bit after I got married. But when I was single, I'd do that all the time. You know, I was by myself and thought, ah, I'll just help these folks out. And they were total strangers to me. Now, you know, there is some wisdom that you have to put into practice. I mean, it's probably not a good idea to take your wife and your daughter along with you as you pick up strangers along the freeway. And, you know, that, that probably wouldn't be the best route to go. Um, but this is literally what this word means. Show hospitality, not just to, you know, your neighbors or your friends or your family. This means pursue the love of strangers. I mean, that's very convicting. At least it's convicting for me. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality, look, to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Wow. I mean, to love one another, to honor one another, to serve one another, to pray for one another, to meet one another's needs is at the very heart of what we call Christianity. And this last responsibility here is simply to show responsibility to strangers or to show hospitality to strangers. In Titus chapter 1, verse 8, he encouraged elders to be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus admonished the Pharisee the host that was hosting him in Luke 14, verses 12 to 14, he says this. He says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, Jesus said this, invite the poor, <laughs> invite the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you'll be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Wow. I don't know about you, but that convicts my heart big time. Last time I checked at Easter time and Christmas or Thanksgiving, we had folks over to our, our house. I don't, I don't know how many poor and crippled and lame and blind. We've had a couple deaf people there, but, but other than that, that's about it. <laughs> That's convicting. Third John, verses 4 to 8, he writes this. Beloved, you're gonna get, we're going to get to this on Wednesday night in a couple weeks. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. Isn't it funny how the New Testament had this special relationship with strangers? And I think it was such a, a desire to reach people for Christ that they, didn't, they were going to reach strangers. And they bear witness to your love before the church. And you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. First Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. And so when you stop and you, you think about hospitality, it should be something that we do with joy in our heart 
that God has given us the means to bless other people, not a duty that we, you know, just hate. Oh, we got people over to the house. <laughs> no, it should be like, wow, this is, this is great. This is, we have fellowship. And I think that all these things, when you go through there, and I told you last week that this is kind of a staccato list that Paul put together. And some of these things are going to convict some of us. And some of them, we look at it and we go, well, we don't feel a whole lot of conviction there. Well, maybe that's because God has blessed us with the ability to maybe do what we're doing in that area. But there's other areas on this list where we feel a lot of conviction. And that's okay, too, because none of us have arrived. But we need to be working on these. And so I ask you in the coming weeks to pray over this list and to say, you know, what area, Lord, do you want me to focus in on? What do I need to improve on? And then God will show you, and you'll be better off. The church will be better off, and your, your Christian life will continue to grow for his glory. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that these words are here for our edification. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we're not what we should be yet. We're all in the process of sanctification, and, Lord, it doesn't matter... Um, how long we've been a Christian even, that we're all in process. And Lord, we all need to pray more. We all need to be more patient in tribulations in our lives. We, all these things apply to our lives. And so, Father, we just pray that you would, if you could just point out one or two that you want us to work on in the coming weeks, Lord, that we would yield that part of our, our life to you. And once again, that maybe in a year from now, those things wouldn't be as convicting because you've made headway through the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word in in that area of our life. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for our salvation that you provided freely to us through Christ at great expense to him. You freely provided that salvation to us. And so, Father, we pray for any who may be here this morning who've yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, that somehow, that, Lord, you could draw them to yourself, that you could show them their sinfulness before a holy God and their need of a Savior. Lord, there's nothing we can do to fix this. And, Lord, we can only look to you. And you've done everything that you can on the cross. And so, Father, we, we know that you draw men and women and children to come to be convicted of their sin and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And so, Father, it's as simple as just crying out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. That's a prayer that God will answer if it comes from a sincere, broken heart. So, Lord, we thank you for our time. We pray for our food across the way, um, our fellowship together. Pray that you'd bless that to our bodies as well. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.